we've been in an amazing series called uh, The Vow. And our goal is to help your marriage or your future marriage to be all that God designed it to be. Now, I know there's probably uh, those of you in here that are single, that you're not married yet, or you've been divorced and you may be thinking about marriage in the future. Let me tell you, this, the things that we're going through is going to help you to lay a foundation and give you a platform to springboard off of uh, to help the marriage in the future. And hopefully it will help you to keep you from being one of the, st the statistics that we talked about over the last couple of weeks. Um, now, I've got to say that over the last 37 years of full-time ministry, thanks, man. <clears throat> over the last 37 years of full-time ministry, I've seen and heard it all when it comes to marriage. I've done um, premarital counseling for couples that I literally said, you should not get married. Uh, you're a train wreck waiting to happen. And we stopped the counseling right there. Because uh, it was obvious they, they had no clue what marriage was or even what they were getting into. Um, and I wasn't going to put my stamp on that. So uh, sometimes you have to be honest. I've done weddings in, uh, I've done weddings in a bank, believe it or not. They, they both worked at the bank. They met at the bank, and we did the wedding in front of the vault. Serious. I don't know if that was a sign of something. I don't know, but that's where we did the wedding. I did a cowboy wedding once. It was outside, thankfully, because the bride came down the aisle on a horse. Seriously, not kidding. So I've seen, seen it, uh, and I've heard it all over the last 37 years. One of the things that I heard was this one, and this was great. A guy uh, was, <coughs> was talking to his, his counselor, and his counselor told him that he really needed to be just a little bit more romantic with his wife, and he really thought that would go a long way into helping her. So one, he decided he was going to do that. So one morning he gets up very early before his wife was even out, uh, awake. He gathers up uh, some nicer clothes, takes them with him, and he heads off to work. He comes home that night from work, and he's got on a, a suit and tie. He's got cologne on. He had stopped at the store, got picked up a bouquet of flowers, and, and he had a box of chocolates. And he could not wait to get home and to go up to that door. And he decided, I'm, I'm going to ring the doorbell because I want her to answer. I want her to, I just want to see her expression when I hand her these flowers and chocolates. And so that's what he does. He goes home. Goes up to the house, he's got a bouquet in one hand, he's got a box of chocolates in the other, and he rings the doorbell, and he just stands there waiting, and his wife comes to the door, and she opens it up, and he just hands those to her, and she just stands there, and all of a sudden, she just starts bawling, she just starts crying, and then she says, I can't believe it, little Johnny's been throwing up all day, the dishwasher just broke. Your mom just called and said, they're coming for the weekend, and now you come home drunk. <laughs> now, let me ask you, what's your marriage like? What's your marriage like? We began this series a few weeks ago talking about the vow of priority. That was the first thing we talked about, the vow of priority, and the importance of making God our number one and our spouse our number two priority in our lives. Last week, Chad talked about the vow of pursuit. Now, marriage is something 
that we are always working on by continuing to pursue, continuing to romance, continuing to date our spouse. And today I want to unpack what we are calling the vow of partnership. The vow of partnership. So as we get started today, let me ask you this. And let me just see by a show of hands here. How many of you are married to your opposite? Raise them high, come on. How many of you are married to your opposites? Okay, how many of you are married to someone that's really pretty much the same as you? Anybody? There's not a lot of difference. Maybe a couple of you. Now, I say that for this reason. Those of you that know Lucy and I uh, really well, you know that we are the complete opposite. We, we just are. We've always been, and that's just the way it is. We're the complete opposite. I kind of go with the flow. Um, she's a planner. I mean, when we go on a trip or if we're going somewhere, literally, she's packing two weeks ahead of time. I mean, she's got everything laid out. She's packing. She's getting ready for that day when we leave, okay? I pack either the night before or that morning, depending on how early we're leaving, okay? So that's me. We're just totally opposite. We're totally different. In fact, if we'll, I'll, I'll, we'll wake up in the morning and I'll say, how did you sleep? I know Chad's had the same experience. I'll go, Lucy, how'd you sleep? She goes, well, I didn't sleep that great. I go, well, how come? Was I noisy? She goes, no, you weren't noisy. She said, I was just thinking about things I needed to add to my list. Okay. I mean, so that's how she is. And I'm the complete opposite of that. Now, the, the reality is, though, we function great together in this way. And one of the reasons is because she keeps me focused and on task at home as well as in ministry. And I told the first service this, and I'll tell you this, because I'm not ashamed of it at all. I would not be who I am today if it wasn't for my wife. That's just reality. I wouldn't be who I am, especially in ministry, if it wasn't for Lucy. Because when I first got into ministry out of college, and I was a youth pastor and children's pastor, I, I'm, I'm, those of you who know me, I'm a people person. There's nobody I don't know, you know. And if we're out at restaurants, I see somebody that has like an Indiana shirt on or something like Purdue or whatever, I'll go talk to them because, hey, I'm from Indiana, you know, so we got something in common. You know, but she doesn't do that. But that's just how I am. So people persons usually aren't the most organized because we just want to be involved with people. So let me tell you, early on in ministry, when I struggled, she's the one that bailed me out. And she helped me to be organized. She helped me to become who I am today. And it's because of what she has been able to pour into me. The other side of that is I've hopefully helped her over, to, over the years to take some fun risks that she probably would have never taken because of her personality. You see, we're different, but we work together because... We understand what it means to be partners in marriage. Now, how many of you rem remember the movie Jerry Maguire? Anybody see that movie? Okay. In the movie, there are three lines that tend to be etched in your memory. Help me out here. The first is this. You had me at? Good. Show me the? Good. Did you know a human head weighs? Okay, eight or ten. I, I had down ten. Okay. But that's not one of the questions. Okay, how about this one? You blank me. Right, you complete me. Now, you may be asking, what does this have to do with marriage? Well, it's that last line, no matter how cheesy it may sound, that's really true. That is this, you complete me. 
You see, God uses our spouse no matter how different they are or how alike they are to us, to complete us. One of my favorite passages is found in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. This is what it says. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. I especially love this line. Three are even better, for a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. Let me ask you. If you're going to rappel down a mountain or out of a helicopter, if you're going to climb up a cliff, would you rather have a one-stranded cord or a three-stranded cord? Which would you rather have? I'd rather have a three, wouldn't you? I mean, I want to be as safe as I can be. The more strands to the rope, the stronger the rope. And when it comes to the marriage, if you want your marriage to be all that it was supposed to be, if you want it to be strong enough to withstand anything that this world is going to throw at it, then it needs to be a cord of three. You, your spouse, and God. When those three are fused together, by the blood of Jesus, it's hard to break. Last week, Chad read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says, Therefore a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife. They become one flesh. Now, the Hebrew word there for one means altogether. It means that two people are now completely joined as one. You see, in marriage, marriage is about two people becoming one, two people completing each other in every area of their lives, two people being all together and becoming stronger because they're connected to each other. That's why marriage is a partnership. It's a partnership between you and your spouse and hopefully between the two of you and God. So as we think about this partnership, there's a couple misconceptions that we need to take care, of, take care of right out of the gate. And the first one is simply this. And you have probably have heard this over the years. The first misconception is marriage is a 50-50 proposition. Anybody ever hear that? Hopefully you haven't said that. But I've heard that so many times over the years. Well, but marriage is 50-50. No, it's not. Let me say right up front, marriage is not 50-50. Marriage takes two people who are giving 100%. Both people need to be fully committed and engaged if it's going to be what God had in mind and if it's going to be healthy and if it's going to be strong. So, if this is God's design, then why are so many marriages screwed up? <laughs> I mean, why are there so many marriages screwed up? Well, I believe that it may be because of this second misconception. And the second misconception is this, marriage is a contract between two people. You know, one of the biggest issues I've seen over the last 37 years of ministry is that many people view marriage as a contract. I mean, they treat it the same way they, they would treat a car loan or a mortgage on a, on a house. They sign up, they get all excited, they start making the payments, but over time... It just kind of gets old. 
they're not as willing to put in the time. And so when things don't go the way they think it should, guess what they do? They just call it quits. They just get out of it. And the problem is many people treat marriage with the same lack of respect. Here's the thing. Marriage is not a contract. It's not a piece of it's not just a piece of paper that's signed and then sent to the state. It's not just another human relationship that one can walk away from whenever one wants. It is a deeply intimate, deeply personal, and deeply spiritual partnership that's rooted in the very heart of God. And partners help one another. You see, partners desire to share their entire lives together and are willing and ready to stand alongside one another no matter what life throws their way. Now, as we were studying this week, here's something that I found interesting. In the Hebrew language, there's a word used called berith. Berith means to cut. It's a binding agreement. It's a blood covenant. So as Chad and I were researching this this week, he actually found this and came across this and sent it to me, and I thought it was good. It comes from a practice among some of the Messianic churches. Here's what they do in marriage ceremonies. The bride and the groom's right hands are bound together. And a small cut is made with a knife or a sharp blade. What happens when you cut something in your hand? What happens? You bleed, don't you? And with the hands joined together, the blood begins to mingle. And as it mingles together, then they simply say these words, I will never leave you or forsake you, so help me God. And the scar that remains is a sign of the covenant that they made that day. Now, uh, Alyssa and Ryan, I want you to come up here because I'm going to see if we can try that. <laughs> Are you guys willing? No, I'm just kidding. My hand, my hand shakes with a knife. I wouldn't want to do that to you. It's a blood covenant, a blood covenant. And that really is a picture, a representative of what a partnership and what a marriage really is supposed to be. And if that's what it's supposed to be, then what should it look like? Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Go into the New Testament and go to the book of Ephesians. I want you to turn to chapter 5. We're going to begin today with verse 22. But I want you to hold that passage for just a moment because I want to give you a little bit of background that can help us to understand what Paul's writing in these verses. Here's the thing. The teachings of Christ are one of mutual obligation. Here's what I mean by that. They were never teachings on which all the duties and obligations of a relationship were one-sided. As Paul saw it, husbands have as great, if not a greater, obligation as their wives and this was the polar opposite of what they had known up until this time. You see, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was a possession of her husband, just like the house, just like his flocks, just like all of his material goods. She literally had no legal rights whatsoever. In the Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of, of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go to the market. 
Her husband demanded complete servanthood, our servitude and chastity, but he could go out as much as he liked, and he could uh, enter into as many relationships outside of, of, of marriage as he wanted. Under both Jewish and Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belonged to the husband, and all the duties belonged to the wife. But then Jesus comes along, and he just begins to turn everything upside down. And he liberated the first century woman. And he elevated her to a new status of position and privilege in society. But with freedom comes responsibility. And unfortunately, scholars tell us that in Ephesus, the wives were using their newfound freedom in Christ in, neg in negative ways. They had, they had begun to boss around their husbands. After all, generation after generation, they were treated like property. They were treated like slaves. But now Jesus shows up, everything changes, and they're going to take advantage of that. So instead of embracing the freedom that Christ gave them, they distorted it. So Paul tries in these verses to bring them back to where it should be, which is simply founded in the love of God. So what's Paul's challenge then to wives? Well, follow along as I read. Starting in verse 22 of chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. So what is Paul saying? Basically this, very simple. Wives should submit to their husbands. Now, there is probably no biblical teaching more verbally or practically abused than this one of the wife's submission to her husband. In fact, many of us may have grown up hearing wives submit to your husbands, period. And over time, men who are supposedly Christians have taken God's word and used it as a weapon. In some cases, to manipulate, to abuse, to dominate, and to control their wives. Now, I can't say this strongly enough. This isn't God's intention or God's design for marriage. In fact... The concept of submission is taught in many places throughout the Bible, and it does not mean to control. It does not mean slavery. It does not mean inferiority. You see, the Greek word means to put in order. It means to arrange oneself under a delegated authority. In other words, it's entrusting oneself to the leadership of another to accomplish a task. It also came from the military world where soldiers were put in order under direction of their officers. Here's the thing. Godly husbands aren't dictators. Godly husbands are much more like soldiers who take the point and if they have to, will die trying to get those they're responsible for to safety. And godly wives aren't inferior. Submission just means that she was created for a different role, a different purpose than the husband. That's 
why when a Christian wife submits to the Lord and to her own husband, she will experience a release and a fulfillment that, re, that will result in an environment of intimacy, an environment of growth, and an environment where ministry partnership can literally change the world. And here's the thing. Submission is the responsibility of husbands as well. You may think it's just for the wife, but no. Submission is all of our responsibilities. If you don't believe me, all we got to do is go back to verse 21 that began this, this section of Scripture. Because this is what verse 21 says. Because it lays the foundation for everything else Paul has said. Look what it says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's all of us. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's the thing that I want us to never forget. The battle for control is taken away from us at the foot of the cross. Get that? The battle for control is taken away at the foot of the cross. That's why it will always bring us back to this central issue that we talked about in week one, and that is this, Christ must be the foundation upon which your marriage is built. And if he's number one in each of your hearts, then submission will never be a problem. It will only be a platform for greater things to be built upon. But what about husbands? Well, husbands, here's Paul's challenge to you, starting in verse 25. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or a wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and a wife must respect her husband. Throughout scripture, God says more about the quality of the husband's leadership than he does about the wife's willingness to submit. Maybe that's why Paul writes a lot more about what the husband should do than he does about what the wives should do. Paul gives husbands three things, but this morning, because of time, I just want to focus on two of them today. The first is this. Paul says, you need to love your wives. Husbands, you need to love your wives. Last week, we talked about pursuing our wives. We talked about keeping the flame of love and romance burning strong. Knowing and understanding how she needs to be loved can't be taken lightly. We need to continue to pursue them. Somebody said, if you treat her like a thoroughbred, you'll never end up with an egg. I didn't say it, but somebody did. Irma Bombeck was once asked to name the, the one personal possession 
that she considered most worth having. This is what she said. I would have to say my wedding ring. For years, it has done its job. It has reminded me every day for the last 30 years that I have someone who loves me. I want you to know that um, I have the same wedding ring that Lucy gave me on August 18th, 1979. So for the last 37 and a half years, I've had the same ring. It still has the same thing written in it, even though it's kind of worn, so it's hard to read. But every day it's a reminder to me that I have someone who loves me. Sometimes not because of who I am or what I've done, but because she's committed to loving me. And we're partners in this life together. My sons, it's interesting, because my sons have already went through two or three rings. I, I don't understand it. They lose them all the time. <laughs> they buy cheap ones anymore just because they don't want to, you know, lose the money. Let it be a reminder to you of the love that you have. Husbands, let me ask you, does your wife know how much you honestly love her? Does she know that? Or have you just taken that for granted? Paul puts it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he says, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it, is, it keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, and is always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. Here's the thing. It's really easy to say I love you, but love goes beyond words. In fact, love goes beyond words to action. Because if you really listen to the words of Paul in this passage of scriptures in 1 Corinthians 13, you should have noticed that God used words that are actions, not feelings. Biblical love is a verb, and it deals with the way you treat another person. You see, this is not to say that there are no feelings involved in true love, but we are not to wait on feelings before we express love. Because the reality of life and the reality of marriage is this. There are days you wake up and you may not feel love. Or you may not feel loved. But you've got to understand that your, your relationship is not based necessarily on how you feel. It's based on the commitment you made. And when you do everything you can to, to express and show love, I guarantee you, the feelings will begin to be rekindled if they're not there or if they've been lost. So guys, you got to love your wife. And not just with words, but with actions. But he says this, second of all, you need to, you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church. To love your wife as Christ loved the church. As I said a moment ago, I believe that in a godly marriage, there's more responsibility laid upon the husband than upon the wife. And here's the reason for that. The reason is because marriage is a picture of the church. And it's a picture of the church's relationship with her groom, Jesus. 
You see, the church is the bride, and he is our groom. And it's clear from Scripture that Christ is the initiator and the sustainer of that relationship. And our submission to him is in response to his self-sacrificing love for us. As John put it, we love because he first loved us. Guys, I want, I'll, I'll, I'm just going to say this, uh, and I say it with, with, with all my heart because it's been my experience over the years. I've never talked to a wife who would not be willing to be led by a husband who loved her like Christ loves the church. I've never talked to a wife who simply said, no, I don't want to be led that way. I've never talked to a wife who wasn't willing to follow a husband who loved her like Christ loves the church. So you know what that does, guys? It puts the ball in our court, doesn't it? It puts the ball in our court. It means that we have to start loving more like Jesus. It means that we need to be more sensitive. We need to be more compassionate. We need to be more self-sacrificing. We need to be more encouraging. We need to really listen to her heart and then to communicate in a way that shows just how important she is to us. We've got to start loving like Jesus. We need to close. As we do, I want us to go back to creation for a moment. You know, God could have made Eve from the dust of the ground as he did with Adam. But instead, he chose to give us a, a beautiful picture of the woman being made from the very flesh and bone of man. And I believe that this is a picture that shows the depth and the intimacy of the relationship. I believe it shows the depth and intimacy of the partnership that a husband and wife share with each other. And just as God brought Eve to Adam, never forget, he brought your spouse to you. Never forget that. And so what does that mean? It means this, wives... Your husband is uniquely yours. He's uniquely yours. He was created by God to complete you, to partner with you, to lovingly lead you as he sacrifices himself for you, to provide for you, to be the head of the family as Christ is the head of the church. And husbands, your wife is uniquely yours. She was created by God to complete you, to stand beside you, to partner with you, to be there, not beneath you or behind you, but beside you, and to give you the unique insights and wisdom that only she can give you. Never forget, he's brought them to you. I love what Martin Luther once said. He said, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. Great words. And so this morning, maybe the greatest thing you can do for your marriage is to recommit yourself to your spouse.
You just recommit yourself. To, remit, to recommit to doing and sharing life together as their forever partner. To simply say, no matter what happens in life, I'm yours until death separates us. So here's what I want us to do. This morning is, as we go into a time of reflection, Adam's going to come and he's going to play. And as he plays, I just want, I just want us to, I just want us to maybe do some tough soul searching this morning. Last night and this morning, I felt very convicted to do what we're going to do right now. And first service, I, I, we probably had 15 couples up here. Here's my challenge to you. If you're ready to say as a couple, you're right, I, I, we just need to recommit to one another. We need to recommit. We've been so busy with life that we forgot to live life together. We've been so busy with the kids that we forgot who each other are. We've been this or that. But I, I want to recommit to this person that's my partner, to this person that God has brought into my life, this, partner's, this person that's uniquely mine. I just want to recommit to them. And so if that's you and you have the courage to do it, I just want you to stand and come up here and stand with me right now because we want to pray with you today just like we prayed in the first service. We want to pray with you. So as Adam plays and we reflect, just get up and come. And just stand here with me. Anybody else? Jim and Karen, why don't you come up here if you would. Why don't you guys just come together? You guys come right here. Again, Jim, how, how, how many years have you guys been married? As we look at these couples, 
here just in just a, a couple words or whatever, what would you say to them that can help them as they recommit to one another? What would you say? I would say remember why you fell in love in the first place. Thank go you. back there when you need to. Remember why you fell in love in the first place and go back there when you need to. That's good. Jim. And that's why I told the group in first service, that's why it's so important to get plugged into a life group if you're not, because you're going to get hooked up and, and around people that are going through a lot of the same things you are, and all of a sudden you discover, man, we're not as bad as we thought we were, <laughs> you know? uh, because we all struggle. So connect and get in a, get in a group, and, and, and know, this is the other thing I said, that's this, know that we're always here for you. You don't have to be ashamed or afraid to come and just say, we need some help. We're always here for you. So we want to pray for you today and just lift you up. Jim, once you pray, let's pray together.